Everyone loves movie trailers, except when they give away the plot of the movie. But how often do you think about where those trailers come from? Most people think movie studios make them, probably cut by the editor who edited the movie, right? It's actually almost the opposite of what really happens. When a distributor or studio is ready to market something, they turn to highly specialized trailer agencies to make the trailer. The Refinery, one of these trailer agencies, have an online training program that teaches you how to get a job at a trailer agency. The program walks you through the process of making an actual movie trailer using the same project files that the real editors use. And at every step of the way, you get feedback from real trailer editors who work at the Refinery. Then when you submit your final movie trailer, they review it. And if they're impressed, they might invite you in for an interview to work at the refinery. The program is called The Art of the Trailer, and one graduate has already earned a full-time junior editor position at the refinery. You could be next. You can check it out at maketrailers.com, and if you use the promo code MMIH, you'll get 20% off for a limited time. Learn how to become a pro trailer editor and make a movie trailer under the guidance of real trailer editors at maketrailers.com. That's maketrailers.com. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is a podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast. I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on Amazon Prime, on digital, on DVD, on Tubi, and all the places. I'm Liz Manishaw. I'm a writer, director, producer who has directed two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently making my third Best Friends Forever. I'm a producer's rep, and I used to work at Sundance, and I manage the Creative Distribution Initiative. This week, we welcome director Katie Lock O'Brien and composer Barry Neely on the show to talk about their new series, Dick Bunny, where it's the first three episodes premiered at the Austin Film Festival. After that, we play another round of You're the Expert. But first, Ulrich, how are you? I am doing good. I am doing well. I uh, tried to write this week and it didn't go as swimmingly as last week. I think last week I wrote like two pages or something. And this week I wrote like maybe... I don't know. You still wrote. You still wrote. I still wrote. I still wrote. I still wrote. I still did it. I still sat. Yeah. Which was good. And I don't know. That's it. I'm I'm basically just trying to chip away at the block of writing is really what I'm doing right now. And I'm I'm trying to get this 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 script actually written because I really do want to finish it this year. And I do have ambitions of writing another script this year, too. I would hope to write two this year. And that's sort of what I'm putting all my energy into. I had like dreams and, and I, we talked about this a little bit on the podcast of like, oh, I'm going to do a podcast, a podcast. I'm going to do a short film starring my yeah. daughter that I've written and I'm going to make it and do it and everything. I kind of feel like I'm putting that in the back burner a little bit until she's a little older just because she's just so young. And like, it's just it's just hard with a not even three year old to like try to imagine doing anything yeah. like that. They don't listen. They have no patience and they don't listen. It would be amazing. Sure. Like she's so sweet and so cute. It would <laughs> be so amazing to make a movie with her, but I just don't think it's going to work and I think it's going to be painful for her and painful for me. So I think I would just <laughs> just kind of focus on writing right yeah. now and if she seems like she wants to do it at some point then we'll do it. That and the the NFL playoffs, that's like what's consuming <laughs> my life right now. Uh-oh. Which is a lot of fun. I don't know if you're you're watching sports over at your Oh, house. Sean um, is Sean is watching. I have to deal with his, you know, grumble grumbleness. But yes. What's his team? Does he have a team? He has multiple teams, which is upsets everyone. <laughs> he is a Cowboys, a Packers, and a Chiefs fan. Oh, so all my enemies. Okay, I see. He's like all my hated and enemies his, together. He is anti 49ers, which really works well with yes. my Bay Area family. So that's good. Mm hmm. 
Well, yeah, he's picked our yeah. rivals. Like, like you know, we hate we Packers. We hate them. Cowboys. We hate them. And then Chiefs. I think we kind of hate them too. You know, so like it's like oh, we kind of hate just all definitely of them. the Cowboys. I grew up hearing about the the hatred of the Cowboys. So I I've moved past my Packers hatred. Like I was really happy to root for Jordan Love yes. this weekend. But it was really fun to watch the Packers get beaten. I mean, the the, the Cowboys get beaten right, by right. the Packers. That was beautiful. I love. It. But yeah, I miss. I I don't even care. Like I don't like games. I'm not even fa- like fans of teams. I just like watching the games yesterday was so much fun. They were so exciting. So I don't know. I'm trying to focus on the writing and the filmmaking, but that's uh, sports is taking me over. But what what about you? What's okay. going on with you? Things are really good over here. My casting director, everything signed up like I paid her contract signed and she delivered a list of actors and we picked our favorite of the actors and she went out to them and just to get avails, just to see who's available. And she's populating the grid like right now, like like I'm watching the text fill in the grid with their reps names and if they're available this summer. And so that's really exciting. And then I had something really wonderful happen yesterday where Amy and I recently finished a revision of the script. I think I talked about it a lot. And a member of our producing team, his name is Aaron Nemoyton. He's my friend from high school. He's read so many different versions of the script. He read this one and he got it. Like he got what we were trying to do. And no one has ever gotten it before other than me wow. and Amy. Like everyone's always like, you need more kills. You need more violence. You need to, why hasn't this happened by page X? And why hasn't, you know, it's like he understood that we were trying to do something a little different. And we communicated that effectively to him in this draft of the script. And that was really, really exciting. And I'm just, I'm like, hi, I'm like, hi from the fact that I think we're getting closer to like the movie that we're making. I don't know if you remember this feeling where you're like, oh, it's kind of starting to come into shape a little bit right now. And that's really wonderful. Yeah. This is the classic negative Ulrich, but like I, I remember it coming into shape and then be, thinking this is the movie and then realizing that nothing works, you know, <laughs> and and then you have to rebuild it back into shape. But it's really exciting that you uh, that you got to that place. No, it's we really might cool. we might have that exact same experience, but it just it buoys you like you feel like you're drowning and then you're like, oh, wait, someone might understand what we're going for in the future. It gives you like a little bit of light at the end of this. Yeah, panel. yeah. But you've already done that, I think. You already had the movie, then you rebroke it, and then you rebuilt it again, right? Then this already happened. We've done it millions of times, but this time <laughs> I put in all the gross, pervy stuff I've been wanting to put in forever. Ooh. And and it and he liked that stuff. It was just very That's nice awesome. to feel validated for my gross, pervy ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Wait, but let me ask you about your casting director. So, like, are you actually getting answers from people and they're saying, yes, we are available? Yeah. Like, send us the script? Yeah. Oh, man. That's incredible. Exciting. Yeah. Well, only, I only, I haven't looked at the grid in the past few minutes, but my number one choice, it said, they're available at a certain point in June onwards, and it said, interest pending offer and script or something like that but like oh. either way there's a there's a pathway right so we they're there's gonna a say pathway no. like no, or they're well, gonna say no i, I this is not I, a person I, who's gonna I'm say not, yes to us but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say that i'm gonna say that i will but path, and i'll tell you who it is later is but but it doesn't matter like it just felt like oh it's very exciting that's cool there's they know we exist their reps that's and their so their reps assistants know we exist 
you know. Doesn't that make it feel like so much more real when they just know that you exist and yeah. they actually responded to you and they didn't just not respond or say not available or, yeah. you know, give you the finger, you know, as agents do in many different ways. That's yeah. pretty exciting. I do enjoy that. I have very often just given the digital, been given the digital finger. So it's nice not to have that finger in my face. That's awesome. Congratulations. You should, that should be like a big celebration. You should celebrate that a little bit. I'm going to, after I get all my work done today. Nice. But you know, what's more important than anything at all is Patreon. It really is actually, because it keeps our show going so that we can get to do this for longer periods of time. Patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. Every single cent goes towards the making of the show, goes towards the recording of the interviews with your favorite filmmakers. The transparency on how making movies is difficult, every cent goes to that. If you give at least $1.99 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog, which is like hundreds, hundreds of episodes that are not available easily. And there's a lot of great things in that vault. But without any more delay, here's Eric Toms, our producer's chat with Katie Locke O'Brien and Barry Neely. We are here with director Katie Lock O'Brien. We are here with composer Barry J. Neely. I'm very excited to have the two of you guys here. Thank you so much for joining. Of course, you are here for at the Austin Film Festival for your film, Dick Bunny. Yeah, it's actually an independent series. Mm-hmm. So we're getting to screen our first three episodes. Give us the elevator pitch for Dick Bunny. Ooh, I would call it a dark comedic deep dive into the identity crisis of the first year of motherhood, mm-hmm. plus magical realism and puppets. Basically, a sleep-deprived new mom is so at the end of her rope that she conjures up a sarcastic Beatrix Potter-esque man-rabbit to Mm -hmm. be her ally in the war against, or the pushback against modern mom culture. Yeah. Oh, that old story. Sure, of course. (laughs) How many days did you guys shoot? It ended up being 11 days, but to be fair, we shot six episodes, so it's about an hour worth. And how long is each episode? It varies. This was sort of, this project was meant to be a sort of proof of concept sure. for pitching the series. Mm-hmm. And so that actually afforded us a nice luxury because we were able to make each episode just as long as it needed to be to feel right. There sure. were sort of no constraints on it. And so earlier episodes are six to eight minutes. The In the back half of the season, there are episodes that are like 15 or 16 minutes long because there's a little more story to get in, but the whole thing has a nice arc. Mm-hmm. And it just, from the second I read the script, I knew it was one of those things that on the page, not a lot of people are going to get it. Mm-hmm. But I just saw it in my head immediately. And I was like, this is the kind of thing you have to show people. Yeah. You know, and this dialogue is the kind of thing that people need to be to be. It needs to be put in people's ear. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like some some scripts are universally. It's clear on the page. And then some voices are quite new and unique. Yeah. And this was one of those. Yeah, it's funny. I'm a big fan of The Twilight Zone. And in the 80s, Wes Craven did a uh, mm-hmm. new series. And some of the episodes were 15 minutes long. Some episodes were seven minutes long. And he made it a point in the commentary to say, like, a story needs to be how long a story needs to be. Yes. And it's a lot of times that we'll watch films or television where you can tell, like, oh, there's a lot of padding in here. Or, like, you guys really added a bunch because you were trying to make, you know, 22 minutes. Or you were trying to make 90 minutes. Trying and- to get it there. Or the inverse happens. By day, I'm mainly an episodic director Mm -hmm. and actually a huge uh, and specifically in half hour comedy for the most part. And a huge part of my experience is shooting things on set. You get to do it in the way that it deserves to be played out. 
And in the director's cut, you it's not ultimately my responsibility to get it down to like 21 and a half minutes or whatever it needs to be for the network. And so I get to give these sort of beautiful moments where things that matter can land and people can fully take them in mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And then just by the constraints of the medium, often that's the first stuff to go, yeah. right? In mm-hmm. favor of jokes, mm-hmm. in favor of getting all the lines in. Whatever. And so you watch the final cut that makes it past past showrunner, past network, past studio, et cetera. And it's like line, 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 joke, 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 joke. And yeah. I always think that is ultimately to the detriment of a lot of comedies because what makes me want to invest in a character is actually whether they're fully genuinely affected by it. And yeah. I think the more I see that emotion or the more I see things matter mm-hmm. to that person, mm-hmm. the more leeway I give them comedically to do anything insane because now I know that you would go that far because it means that much to you. Yeah. You know, and, and, I, and it comes out. I do want to talk a little bit later about your day job versus what you were filming when it came to Dick Bunny. But for right now, what if you can mention it, what was your rough budget for, for Dick Bunny? Haha. <laughs> Who knows? Still counting. It was, well, to be <laughs> less fair. Than five million. This was, can... uh, less than $5 million, <laughs> okay. more than $5. Got it. I think in the end, and this is keeping in mind that this weirdly and stupidly, for uh, an independent series has a lot of visual effects mm-hmm. and just a lot. It, it just was much bigger than, you know, if you were writing to be able to do this in a scrappy way, we did the scrappiest possible version of what it deserved to be. Throughout the series, there are many moments where we push in through, uh, push yep. into Max, the lead character's brain, yeah. to kind of see what's going on in there. Because a huge part of what's happening in that first year of motherhood is that. In truth, biologically, your whole brain is getting rewired. Mm-hmm. And so part of the reason that you like don't feel like yourself anymore and you're trying to sort of figure out who this new person is, is that not only have your prior- external priorities changed, but also your actual brain is like suddenly quickly rewiring itself to be like a mother gorilla who's like <laughs> scanning the horizon for threats, right? And yeah. so there's all this, you know, you just feel so upended. And so that was sort of a big part of the fantastical elements of the show and so we you know we shot practically with puppets and we had amazing puppeteers mm-hmm. from Henson and Swazzle and they built us gorgeous things and but then we needed a lot of visual effects to do the moves into and out of the brain and to layer in extra elements and to kind of make that smooth because it was very important to me i think the subject matter is a little out there and we were taking some really big visual swings and to me you have to then give that enough polish to make it palatable mm-hmm. for people or or comfortable for people. Mm-hmm. Because I think if it looks too lo-fi, <laughs> they sort of discount it or shake it off. Yeah. And what I wanted very badly was it, for it to be the most elevated version of lo-fi. Mm-hmm. So it's intentionally sort of like sometimes the puppets are just two popsicle sticks with googly right. eyes. But that's because that's Max's world yeah. right now. Did you have to, did you establish a better puppet first and then do the googly eyes? Was it there, was, was to Susie. Barry, although I appreciate your questions, I really have, <laughs> I would like to interview. Don't Kate. That would be awesome well, as well. You're here as a composer. Yeah. I don't know all this stuff. I was there on Puppet Day. Well, but I don't know most out. of this stuff. I may ask some of these questions. <laughs> don't you worry. Barry was also on set and has I seen the full this. series. So what? <laughs> I, but, I, but I see the aftermath. And so I'm like, oh, wait, that? Oh, yeah. What was that? <laughs> we'll get to all of that. I Barry's promise. like, you know that actors on actors format? I like that better. Let's just yeah, do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Eric, you sit quietly. Uh, maybe get some coffee. Well, I don't. Uh, I don't want ever want to interrupt the guest, but I don't care about interrupting the host. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I should. I should give everyone a 
bit of a primer. Well, I've known the two of you for well over a decade. Is at the this primer point. shut the hell up, Barry? No, no, that, that's the subtext. <laughs> the primer is um, if you're a stranger, don't treat the podcast host this way. But if you have a little bit of history, it's kind of okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but I do want to okay, know. Ira Glass, just whatever. getting before we get to production. So of yeah. course, this the series was written by Susie Mendoza, yes, uh, who's a friend of yours. And so, how did you go from because she? And I spoke a little bit last night when we were having dinner, mm. and she had mentioned this was going to be a sort of thing I'm going to write during the pandemic. Maybe I'm going to shoot this with my iPhone. It'll be just two people in a kitchen. So how did it go from that to being in your lap? I think the glory of where Susie began and what that, what kind of uh, leeway that made for me is that she actually had, she's been writing for a long time, but she had very little production experience with yeah. indie stuff at this level. Yeah. Which was good and terrible for me because she had no sense of how to like write for a budget. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that mean that meant there were 700,000 props that we needed to track <laughs> down and a bunch of other things like that. And 400 locations. And I kept being like, or also in her house. But also because she was sort of having it in mind that she would have to do it herself. I always think like limitations actually spark creativity. Sure. Right. And so for her, it was this combination where she'd be like, well, what could I probably pull off? This is two popsicle sticks and this is two soup cans. But then sometimes she'd be like, but then this time you go inside her head and it's Gwyneth Paltrow yeah. or it's the screaming sheep from YouTube. Yeah. And then I had to be like, OK, so you can't actually have footage of Gwyneth Paltrow. That's not yours or a, a YouTube video that you she has to be own. pushing a goop. Yeah. Some but sort then, of line as but well. Then yeah. like, but then that was fun for me because then I was like, OK, but how do I solve that? We're going to have the puppeteers create a Gwyneth Paltrow puppet so that we can see that. And, you know, so it kind of did this nice thing. So. Susie, I actually just kind of knew peripherally mm -hmm. through a mom group and Kim Griffin, who plays Max in the series. And the two of them had this idea. They've been sort of cooking up and Susie had written just the pilot episode. And so she sent it to me and she was like, just had this hunch in her gut that I might be the right match for it, but was very nervous because it is quite weird. I often say, Susie reminds me of like, what was Diablo Cody doing before Juno got made trying to get staffed on CSI? Like, what do you, you know, like some people, they just have like a very unique voice yeah. and they need to make their own thing and show people what that is. Yeah. Right. And so she sent it to me and a third of the way down the first mm -hmm. page, I was like, yes, yes. Oh my God. Yes. I and remember you voicing your excitement. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember that. And I was just, and I had this weird feeling cause I was quite busy with, you know, day job work at the time and whatever, but I just felt like, if someone else makes this, like I can already see it in my head, if someone else makes this and I don't get to and I watch the finished product in a year, it'll be wrong and I can't stand that. So it yeah. has to be me. And then Susie and Kim were very patient because it was a long road. Yeah. They sent this to me right before COVID. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, you know, there was about a year where we couldn't even do independent shooting. And we had to even wait all the way until like people's kids were vaccinated and stuff. Yeah. We, were, we were shooting in each other's houses. We, we just had to sort of be very more safe than normal. We had some immunocompromised people involved. So we had to wait all that time. But what that ended up doing is I, stupidly, was like, ah, we've got this year to burn. Like, why don't you keep writing episodes? Let's see if we can create a big arc and find a whole season here. And then it was great. And Susie is fast and prolific. And each thing that came in, I was like dying laughing over more than the last. And then I had all six episodes in front of me. And I was like, what have I done? <laughs> um, and so, you know, we, it was a very piecemeal effort. And we had to do about three. We did like three days in March of 2022. Mm -hmm. Then it was almost six months before I had another space between episodic work to shoot enough. And we did so another two days here. And then the final, I guess, six after that. And 
but you know, everybody was amazing and everybody, there was just like a clarity of vision that was shared by yeah. all the lead creatives enough that we could put it down and pick it right back up again. And it, you know, it kind of was fine. Oh, great. So, yeah. Um, now to speak to Barry's job as a composer, you and I have worked on many projects together. I've had a window into kind of your process, but this is a bit of me guessing because it's only been the project that we've worked on. When you were working on this together, was it she coming to you just with scripts? Was it she coming to you that this is the completed thing? Were you sitting down like, listen, these are some like the sound cues that I'm thinking of. Like, this is the kind of music that I'm Because I know when we've worked on stuff in the past, you often hear like a particular instrument and you're mm-hmm. like, I hear a lot of this. And so then you kind of build from there. But was that the same process with this as well? Yeah, so she sent me the scripts, and I get intimidated by reading scripts because often my friends' comedy scripts they send me, and they're like, "Do you think it was funny?" And I'm like, "I don't know," you know. <laughs> and then and then they're just insulted. Yeah. So I was I I get a little worried before I read a script, but like it was crazy in a good way, and it was kooky, and like knowing Katie's last film have it all found this niche for for mothers that hadn't been found before Mm -hmm. i was like okay this is i think this is going along those same lines and this is important yeah and so from the scripts i think and i guess that was in 2020 i maybe you gave them in 2021 but when we when the day that i was on set in 2022 was the day i was like i know what i need to write for this and i think i might even have a voice memo from that day where i just had something in my mind yeah and i am such an arrogant composer that i just go (laughs) And I mean that in a good way where, like, I have an idea and I want to get it out because I I don't want to stop that process. Yeah. So what I did was I think I wrote maybe 90 seconds, maybe two minutes of a thing, and I sent it. And I just wrote it. And it it was more layers than I've ever written before. And it was just my initial idea. And then I sent it to Katie. And then that six months happened. And I didn't hear anything. And... Um, and, and Eric, and as a side note, as you know, when I send out music yes. and I don't hear anything, that's the internal panic just sets in. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, oh, they hated it. I'm a terrible musician, this, that, you yeah. know, and then you just, the walls crumble in. I have made the mistake with you where you've sent me music and I just was like, great, I'm doing the rest of production. You're like, wait, wait, did you like it? Exactly. Did you yeah, like, yeah. write I something know. back, jackass? And the problem when that happens, and this is, of course, the, the, plight of all artists right because yep. i'm like of course it wouldn't mean that but the second that i send anything out to anyone and don't immediately get praise <laughs> sure. i'm like they hate me i should quit my job and like move to ireland and make shoes and so you know but to me like barry sent that to me but at that point i mean the the series is so kind of wide-ranging despite being very contained that i just didn't know yet and and, mm-hmm. and what i lo- what i like about it is like barry will take a big swing and i'm yes. like actually could not have told you at that point if that was the theme of this yeah. show or not because yeah. we had still so so far to go in the finding. Mm-hmm. And then what's great, though, about then having that sample as opposed to just like waiting till it's done and then being like, okay, let's figure out what, what the score sounds like is that even to have that sample makes it easier, I think, I think then for me to get more specific in my language mm-hmm. about what we're aiming for because yeah. that's the hard part, I think, for directors working with a composer is you want to, of course not stifle or like I, as a director, I always want somebody to beat my idea. Yeah. Right. I don't very rarely, I think only with have it all. I was like, it's only percussion. It has to feel like that, you know, but that for some reason that was like a clearer one, but with a bigger piece like this, you certainly want everybody to come in with exciting ideas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the trick is to sort of make sure everyone's aiming for the right thing 
without blocking off something that might be helpful. So then to have a sample at the beginning of the process is nice because I can be like, okay, great. Is that where your head is? So let me try to get your head closer to where my head is. Yeah. But like still keeping a lot of that inspiration. And, and I never wrote that piece. I'll call it, you know, the anthem, the opus, whatever. I never wrote that thinking she's going to like this and, and, and that's it and we're done. Yeah. It's like I know that she doesn't know what she might want. But also in terms of writing music, I also don't want her to write to temp music mm-hmm. later on and then be locked into that. And then I can't do my ideas. And yeah. temp music, um, we could go on for days about the, the bad and the good. But for this, I was like, I better get this in early mm-hmm. because I this is how I see it. And if she ever said I, it's not what I want, I'd be like, oh, oh, OK, well, yeah, well, of course, it's not what you want. I just went for it. Yeah. So I wouldn't be insulted by right. that. And in the end, I got to say 70, 80 percent of that is the score. So yeah. I yeah. think I I guess I got it right. <laughs> and I'm afraid to look at Katie right now. I know, visual medium, we're here. I'm afraid to look at Katie because like, pretty I'm sure like, I got it. Hey, you take what you can get. You know? yeah. No, no, no. No, no it, it was. Because yeah. no, there's an element to, Katie, you're, you might be on a time crunch, but I definitely want you to like the music. So but, please never just say, sure, and then continue on. And then, li- and then live in sadness for the rest of your time. Well, yeah. That wasn't what you believe. No, but, yeah. you know, I'm, I would say... All of this is just the number one lesson for all filmmakers everywhere is just the goal of your art and every new project you do is to collect humans. <laughs> and because then the the enormous, like I could have never pulled off this series, which is way too complicated and way too giant for like any normal sane person to make as an independent thing. If I didn't have by now having made a ton of tiny budget things, my very much go-to people with whom I have such a shorthand that you can do that on a time crunch. Mm -hmm. And that like, like, you know, even if Barry is taking a wild swing, he has a good sense of things that I gravitate toward, you know, what my sensibility is, like what it's going to feel like, what my sense of humor, you know, we've just known each other for a long time. And I think that cannot be under uh, the importance of that cannot be underestimated, you yeah. know, and that's, that was that way with my editor, like, you know, same thing. And it just changes the conversation you get. It sort of jumps you past the first 10 drafts where you're like, who are you? What are you into? It's like, <laughs> oh no, I already know. So yeah. do you like this version or this version? You know, and you can kind of get right into the roll your sleeves up part of it. Yeah. Well, I want to talk to continue with the music for a second. Cause you and I have had conversations before where you have said that a short is actually one of the hardest things to compose for because you have 10 minutes and this is the one piece of music. We're going to use this one. Whereas if you have more of a long form, then you can come up with something very robust, but then you can kind of take parts of that and like, okay, this is going to be a little bit more melancholy. So we're going to use, we're going to use the undertones. This is going to be more exciting. So we're going to use like kind of the higher tone. So because this was a series, were you able to find, was it the same thing or were you approaching each script as its own composition? First of all, you gave away the secret to film composition. Oh no. Okay. We can edit all that out. We can get rid of that. So this was... I definitely, because it was six episodes and it was, I consider it a 45 minute short film. That's just kind of how I. It's an hour long for a short film. Is it hour long? Uh, Oh, good. Then I wrote more (laughs) than I thought. Uh, But you're right. Everything you just said was correct. And I'm glad. Thank you for listening. Yeah, buddy. Uh, No, I'm serious about that because that is what it was. And actually last night I met another composer here since we're at Austin Film Festival, just to mention where we're at. Yep. She confirmed that too. Because sometimes as a composer, you're in your isolated world of your own room Mm -hmm. and you don't know what other composers are doing. And, you know, and so 
yeah, short films. Actually, this woman, Catherine Joy, phenomenal uh, composer and everywhere. She was like, it's actually harder to write for a short film. Yeah. And Katie's film, Have It All, was going to be solid music. You know, it was almost its own song. So it was a very different process. But again, I had to come up with what I felt would be the rhythm that could, or the, even though it's a rhythm, it's a theme. Mm -hmm. And it can go out throughout the five minutes. For Dick Bunny, it was, I did come up with this, I did exactly what you said. I came up with this theme and then I started pulling that from that and extracting from that and bringing it to other parts of the show. That being said, every part of the, every episode is a little different, which is negating exactly what I said about being a, a feature. <laughs> but it was, it was good because also I don't want to write one big piece and then just use that. I yeah. want to be challenged. And Dick Bunny goes through different levels and therefore, or different feels. And sometimes you need to just kind of adapt for whatever that scene is, mm -hmm. which you cannot extract from that long theme that you wrote so i did have the opportunity to come up with something brand new for at least once in each episode yeah now of course you always go into production with a plan and of course then production happens and you find usually you have to zig you have to zag you have to come up with new ideas and there's the there's always three different films you're making there's the film that you have in pre-production there's the film you have in production then there's the film you have in post mm -hmm. so what was it that you had in pre-production that managed to survive all the way through? And what were the things that you just had to go by the wayside or change completely? Ooh, great question. You know, I, I feel like the limitations that happened when, we, when it came to production ultimately made it better. In pre-production, there was, a, like, luckily, and I thank everyone involved for indulging my craziness, you know, it's a very lot of polite, and nice, crazy. No, I mean, uh, yeah. no, I mean, you're you're crazy. You saying that? It's not like we're doing way, this one or way like, different than I think. Yeah, okay, trust me, that's you're fair. good. That's you're good. Fair. Thanks. You know, but there were things that I there are many things, and especially in the visual style that I saw from go, and I was like, this is what it is, and that's how it turned out. And then our incredibly talented DP. Maricela Mendez. We also worked with DP Andrew Brinkhouse. Mm -hmm. He established a beautiful, a beautiful shooting style in that sort of for like first three days that we did. And we had worked together before and we were like pushing things we'd done. And then it was also fun. We just by nature of it being six months apart, Maricela came in for the last eight days and because it was like a fresh new pair of eyes. And she had some really fun ideas that yeah. I wouldn't, that wouldn't have occurred to me that elevated the style for that. The final episode culminates in like a massive music video. So much mm -hmm. of this, so much of this season or the series really is all about her interior life and you're constantly going inside her brain, but also popping to whatever she's imagining. And at any moment you kind of are jumping back and forth between her reality and what her brain is doing. And in some episodes that turns into a short film or like a crumping montage or a whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like, kind of all over the place stylistically in the most fun way. The sort of big emotional climax is a music video where yeah. she's like learning to just like embrace and find her new self. And of course, in pre-production, I'm like, and then we're going to shoot a real music video. <laughs> right? And then we get there and I'm like, what am I thinking? We can't do a company move. We're not going to get a studio to shoot a music video. And, but the fun of that was that then it made me work harder yeah. to figure out what that was. And what, what I ended up doing is ordering like a bazillion feet of mylar and these like woodsy backdrops and all these crazy costumes and stuff. And we kind of like shot this wonder where we transformed in real time her house into 
a music video setting oh, wow. that she finds herself in. And in the end, that's better because the whole point is that she's trapped in these four walls. And this is her whole world now, is her own home. And so it's way more impactful. Like, I'm so glad that happened. Then we finished shooting. I also have to say, so much of the extra that we found was because of cast. We yeah. The cast is an absolute embarrassment of riches. I just like... Reach out, Kim reached out to Drew Drogi, who is an incredibly talented comedian. Mm-hmm. And he came in and just it just started to sing. That was phenomenal. All of the rest of the supporting cast, I just reached out to all my favorite actors from TV shows I'd worked on or friends or whatever. And I'd be like, hey, we have like $5, but also lasagna. Will you come to this? <laughs> yeah. And they all said yes. And they were all exceptional. Right. And so we found so much extra humor in that in those days. And each day was its own style because of the way the show is written. And then we would finish shooting. I'd be like, oh my God, that was amazing. And then switch to something totally new the next day. We got done shooting and I called my editor and I was like, oh God. And he was like, (laughs) what? I was like, I'm not, I think I just had like an 11 day fever dream and I (laughs) shot it. It's not ever going to make sense together. And he's like, just give give me the finish. This is okay. You know? Um, And so I was like totally like down and out for like a month. I was like, this is going to be a disaster. Yeah. And then, you know, then you just like crunch your way through it and you work with the Play-Doh. And then it was totally what I had hoped for. I have so many questions based on all of that. I I think this is important for emphasis. So I did the score and the underscore. Yeah. But there were songs in the show. Uh, Yeah. And a song at the end. Some of the songs were done by Bo Black and some who did. Oh, and so I did not write the last music video song and it's gorgeous. Yeah. And not only is it gorgeous, but Kim, the lead actor, sang it. Oh, wow. And so that was really nice. And it was just nice to see that. It was I just loved that last music video. Yeah. Now, going back to what you were talking about with regards to, you know, you've got these fantastic actors. How much of it was sticking to the script? How much of it were you allowing for improv? And also, because Susie doesn't have, who's the writer, doesn't have a lot of production experience, if she found you going off the page at all, was was that a conversation you have to have? Did you, how did you kind of navigate all of those waters? I think, well, it's twofold. For one thing, there is actually a huge benefit to working in TV all the time, I think, because rather than coming from features where I'm the be-all, end-all, like the director is the say, it is my job to make the showrunner happy, you know, coming into any show that I work on. And so it's sort of second nature to me to be back and forth with the writer the whole time. And it's funny because now Susie constantly is like, what a dream. You would never expect that your director would like ask you what you think on set. And I was like, oh, I guess, yeah, sorry. That was like, that was so obvious to me. I think there was also an extreme accidental benefit Mm -hmm. in how long it took us from when we started the scripts to when we were actually able to shoot because Mm -hmm. all of that time was just us getting coffee, talking about it, dreaming about it, whatever. So that by the time we got to set, we were so on the same page Yeah, that it was just a very quick back and forth and we would let people play, but then we both knew how to instantly steer them back. Rain it in. Yes. Yeah. So... Let's go back to, so you've got the scripts, you know, you're, you're dreaming, as you said, you're having these coffee. So when it comes to funding, how are you guys getting the money for this? Is this like all, is this Indiegogo? Is this like campaigns? Is this finding independent financiers? Are you guys throwing in your own money? Like what, what was that sort of process? It's interesting. We, we initially did a seed in Spark mm-hmm. campaign and we raised, you know, like maybe twelve or $13,000. Yeah very hard after you've been doing this indie you know shorts and things for a long time and you've asked everyone in your life for money over and over and over again yes. you're like you get 
guiltier over time, I think. But we, you know, we raised a good chunk of money. And as soon as we started shooting and saw what it could be and how well it was coming out, it was both so exciting. And I was also like, oh, crap, we have to keep up this level now. We can't go back, yeah. you know. And the puppeteering was mind blowing. But puppets are not cheap. Don't put them in your thing if you don't want to invest. And, you know, just to have the people and to do it right. It obviously like, you know, we use that up in the first three days. So then we did go through a long stretch during the subsequent six months mm -hmm. where we talked to various, you know, producers and we, you know, we tried sort of different routes, pretty convinced that we could like get some financial support. And uh, two things happened. One was that a lot of the grants and finishing funds and those things that used to exist pre-COVID yeah. don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of those avenues actually weren't open and we were kind of expecting them to be. And then we'd be like, oh, let's look at this one. Wait, where'd the web page go? You know? uh. And then the other thing that happened was just that the further we got into it and each time we would send the script to somebody and they'd be like kind of excited about the idea and then they'd read the scripts and they'd be like, huh? Or they'd be like, yeah, but, you know, I think Dick Bunny needs more of an arc or yeah. like a whatever. And you're like. Dick Bunny is not the main character. It's Max's story, you know, and, uh -huh. and I just started to be like, eh, it's maybe, you know, people don't get it. Maybe this is just one big lesson. That, and even when we got to the end, when I was like talking to my agents and I'm like, please, please, can you help us find any more money? Cause yeah. we are so close to the finish line, but I'm just like now have spent my life savings on making this happen. And they were like, I know, but you know what? You're so close that to bring in someone who's going to have control over it when you go to sell it later feels like a mistake. Yeah. And when you're when you're approaching financiers, when you're approaching producers, what kind of pitch deck do you have? Is it just you on the phone? Do you are you building things out? Or like are you kind of like pre-shooting in like Unreal Engine? Like what what do you have? I did. I mean, luckily we had a large set of stills from the first couple of days. We basically in our first 3-day thing, we did two days of live action scene work. Yeah. Plus a day of the puppets. Mm -hmm. So I was just, I was on the first three days. I came You just in, came one of those days. Yeah, no, but I mean, that was only the first three days. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So we did two days that of. That was early on. Yeah, just two days of, of just Kim and Brendan, her husband, who plays Greg, the husband in the show. They're both fantastic. Amazing. So talented. So we did two days of them and one day of puppets because we just needed to like nail down the puppeteers. And so from that, I sort of had enough of a visual representation that I actually made a huge pitch deck and crafted like a, it was, you know, it's like 50 pages and all kinds of like laying out what's the show about? Why is it different? Who are the people involved? We did know a bunch of the cast that was going to come in at that point. So I was able to also like use that as a tool and whatever. And it got us honestly pretty far yeah. um, with a lot of places, you know, in the door, have a meeting, whatever. But just over and over again, either what I guess like what they would be able to do for us wasn't quite worth it to not be able to now own it 100%, have a proof of concept that we're like, this is what it is. Yeah. And be able to go, hopefully, sell it to the right weirdo network that gets it. You Perfect. Know? Yeah. And when you're getting ready to shoot, are you a, do you have a bunch of stick figure drawings? Is it like, are you building like miniature sets? What, like, what is your process when you are getting ready to do something like this? It's very funny. I came to directing a bit circuitously and I initially was an actor, but also a dancer and choreographer for a mm -hmm. long time. And so much of camera blocking to me feels like choreography. And so I get, anytime directors come in with like, 
architectural overhead schematics and things, I'm like, oh God, I don't know what's happening there, right? I can do terrible, truly like terrible. Stick figure is generous. Mm -hmm. I once got asked by Andrew Brinkhouse, one of our DPs, I once got asked by him, like, is that a horse? And I was like... (laughs) No, no, that's the that's her. She's doing whatever. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm fired I'm forever. Assuming like bending over. He's or... like, where is she looking? I was yeah, like, yeah, okay, okay, don't worry about it. I know what it is. Yeah. I do shot list for sure. But even for me, shot listing is sort of like a t- first tier, second tier kind of thing. It's yeah. like I will know the absolute non-negotiable specials. And I think this also comes from TV training versus feature training, which is you have to sort of cover everything. Sure. And then you kind of learn to just pick your moments, Mm -hmm. right? It's only worth it to go for something super fancy. Like you have no time. That's true in television and also in indie filmmaking. And so it's like, okay, this is a moment where it will absolutely 1000% pay off to go above and beyond. Like this opening shot has to be this like long meandering wonder, but then we can through the rest of the scene, you know? And so, so I sort of like know exactly what the, I'm like, so I can tell the DP at the beginning of the day. I'm like, this is how the scene is blocked. We, these are the three specials. It's this insert that kind of has to like pull out really fast and it's this and it's that, you know? And so we always have like a roadmap, yeah. but then you also find things once you get in and once the actors start to play, I am not one of those directors, which is strange because I was an actor for so long first, but I'm not one of those directors who comes in and is like, just play the scene. Let's find that blocking. <laughs> I'm like, nope, there's no time. Here's the shape of it. But it's because to me, it's so much more about the whole and I'm creating pictures and and opposites and things that are going to be like heightening the relationships visually. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're an actor, you're just looking for like reasons to move and and things. And it feels very natural, but it doesn't necessarily give the audience an extra layer mm-hmm. per se. Whereas I think like when I have a plan like that, I can be like, they have to be far apart in this moment. That's tension. You mentioned, and, yeah. Oh. I'll just say I, I've seen Katie on set and she doesn't hiccup. Mm-hmm. Like it's a very clear cut plan of what she wants. And for a show as bonkers as this one, it was kind of fun to see. Yeah. Because I was like, what? Okay. What? Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you mentioned you mentioned your DP uh, quite a few times. So what is what is your what are the meetings like when you're having with your DP beforehand, day of, weeks leading up to it? Like, are you, you know, he's, of course, deciphering your, your horse drawings. But also, like, are you bringing lighting ideas? Are he, is he bringing stills? Like, how does that relationship work uh, with you? He and Cheeks. We had two. And Maricela did the majority of the days. He and I, Andrew and I have like a longer, we've known each other for a long time and we've worked on a lot of projects. So again, like that shorthand is a little easier. And so we can also talk about it in terms of other things we've done or both liked or whatever. And so that's, that there was like a little bit less prep in that, but, but, but also that's fun because we know each other's work. So then we know how to go, okay, how do we beat what we've done before? Mm -hmm. But then what was fun was then when Maricela came in, we don't know each other at all. Yeah. And she was very trusting of me mm-hmm. because, and, and vice versa, you know, she, I just was like, it, it, there was such a tension and I had to, it, I had to make sure that everybody understood that there's sort of this visual growth that I had in my head where the things that are just happening in real life, in the house, between Max and her husband and the baby and one friend that comes over basically is very mundane. It's almost it's better things. It's, you know, it's like very real life and it's very kind of little drab and the palette is down and whatever. Yeah. And then there's this fantastical world that's going on that is extremely like saturated and colorful. And that's what happens when Dick Bunny arrives, mm-hmm. right? Cause he like turns up the volume on everything. But what happens over the course of the season 
or my hope for it, was that the longer that Dick Bunny's there, the more that he is actually the grounding force and everybody else around her is crazy. Yeah. As she goes out into the world and has to take like this bonkers like baby CPR class and has to go to a dinner party and try to come up with some conversation yeah. to say to a bunch of friends who don't have children and are talking about their travels. You know, yeah. those people become the like insane, too much, too colorful aspect. So it kind of makes a switch as it goes along. Mm -hmm. So we talked about these things and then. I just said to her, I was like, you know, go take big swings. Like, how do we, what lens do we want to use to push into her brain? Like, how can we make that warped and not in a way I've seen before? And how do we just, and then what I always like to do is say, here's like the widest possible, you know, range of what we're going for. And then she would throw things out. And then I would be able to be like, love it, love it. This is too far. And here's why. Yeah. And then I would mm -hmm. like ground it back to reality because it can't ever become too bonkers or it doesn't emotionally have impact. Right. Sure. So we had a great, very fun back and forth. And she brought in this idea of using this like insane 10 mil lens to like push in to her head Ooh, every time that looks mil. crazy. Yeah. And just also like Maricela's style in general is very bright and saturated. And she brought so much to the table in terms of additional thoughtfulness about production design that I on my own don't have time to also do full justice to. Sure. You know what I mean? But in every single shot, she was making sure that certain colors we're popping in the background and certain things, you know, like it was re like so much about color for her in addition to just composition. Yeah. And that I think really served the series in the end. It gives it such a unique look. There's a couple of things I wanted to mention. One, I was also the stay at home parent when it came to my kids. And there's this weird two years where you forget how to communicate with adults because you're hanging out with your buddy and they're just like, yeah, we went to a concert. I'm like, good for you. Mm. Yay. And then you realize like, oh, that's right. We're, we're not six. Yes. Uh, yes. So, yeah, I, I completely understand that. I, I wanted, of course, we have to talk about puppets. As you'd mentioned, puppets are very expensive. Was this your first time working with puppets and puppeteers? It was not. And I think that's why we could pull it off is uh -huh. because I already had that relationship. So a few years ago, I shot a kind of PSA music video mm -hmm. that was entirely puppets. And they were all made by Swazzleberry, like Sesame Streety kind of thing. And even though all through that pre-production process, everyone who had shot with puppets before was like, it'll be harder and slower than you think. Mm -hmm. It'll be harder. To, and I was like, I know, I know, mm -hmm. we're fine, we're fine. And I'm like coming up with cool stuff to do. And then they'd be like, okay, again, but it's even harder and slower than you think on the day. And guess what? It was very hard. Yeah. And there's just no way around it. You know, you have to just be precise in a way that you are not prepared for. Yeah. Beyond, and I'm like, a eh, precise person by nature of it. No, that's not like that. It's like sniper level, you know. And so I learned so much from that day. We were super happy with how the music video turned out and loved all of the people that worked on it. And so when I saw that Susie had sort of put the suggestion of these brain puppets, you know, these objects that what, are what, what you What did see. it say in the script, by the way? What was oh, her initial... The reason that I wanted to do the series is because like three lines in, you know, her husband says to her like, Max, I know you're tired, but like what's going on in your head lately? And it's like, we push into Max's brain... And there's just a gla a, a, an empty mason jar of nuts and bolts rattling in an endless void. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's actually what my head feels like mm -hmm. most of the time since having a baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Here I come. And so, but then, you know, the next one would be like two popsicle sticks say nonsense to each other or whatever, you know. So it was in the script that it was two popsicle sticks. So like yes. there was some specificity. You weren't just like creating things and like mm. I, I, we wanted to be googly eyed. No, no. There were to like it, was, it was more that we got to choose kind of the style and how to the actual challenge what for me was taking all these things that were just 
so, you know, Susie's just like throwing sand around in the sandbox, right? Yeah. So one, she's like, eh, popsicle sticks, eh, Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, there's a sheep video from YouTube. Mm -hmm. And they were unrelated. And so the challenge for me was then how do we create a consistent visual world so that when we push into Max's head, it always feels like we know we're in her brain mm -hmm. has to look somewhat tied together. So then I got to work with the, the puppet builders and our puppet captain to kind of come up with like, well, how do you create a Gwyneth Paltrow puppet mm -hmm. that is from the same world as these two soup cans? And, the, you know, so we created a style and we built a giant brain puppet with a working door that you opens. You also created the puppet stage in the house that they were shooting. So they didn't go oh, to yes. another location to shoot. They created a black box, essentially, for puppets in the middle of this what, Kim's dining room. In the room. middle of the living room and living dining room. room of Kim's house, because that's where we'd been shooting for the two days before. That's yeah. true. Thank you. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And it's strange because, Barry, you also have experience working with puppets yes. and stop motion and green screen and all of that. So like, wh what was your experience when you were working with puppets? And when you walked on set, were you like, Listen, I've got some advice for you because I have been down this road before, friend. Oh, no, 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 no. no I, I don't. I don't do that. If I'm going to send somebody a three minute mock up of a score that I like, I'm not going to then add. I also think I have suggestions of what you should change for this. Fair enough. Or tell you any advice. Short story is, yeah, I made one movie and one movie only that contained a giant, well, an 18 inch robot puppet that I was like, I'm a woodworker. I can make anything out of the wood. Therefore, I will just make a metal puppet that can be puppeteered. And it took me probably a year and a half to make. And you had, there was four people who three were controlling. Pu three, three puppeteers. Three. Okay, yeah. yeah. Three puppeteers. Yeah. Now, the good thing was, as soon as I showed the puppet to the puppeteers, I at least had an idea of what, how they could control it. The puppet captain, Rachel, was like, oh, this is actually a really good puppet. We can work with this. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, and maybe Katie experienced this too, Mine had so many parts and so many moving parts that they would just fall off. Mm -hmm. And you do a take and they would fall off. And you're like, oh, my God, it's ruined. It's like, no, no, no. Grab some double-sided tape. Yeah. Tape it back on. Then they do a take. They do another take. It's great. Then they do one. And then if something else falls off, it's just how it goes. And yeah. that's what kept us slow. I tried to have a good idea of what shots I needed. And then, of course, in the end, I used maybe a quarter of those shots. Yeah. So... I wouldn't have given advice, but my thought would be don't do too many shots. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, first of all, the puppet literally might not survive. You know, it's going to be it's going to be worn and torn, wear and weared and teared and worn and torn or whatever all of those things. Yeah. All those Sounds things. Sounds more Austin, worn and torn. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So that 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 was my experience with puppets and seeing this, at least the puppet shots were quick. One angle usually. But the puppets themselves are really creative. Mm -hmm. Mine, on the other hand, was just overboard and, and obnoxious. But you are being too hard on yourself. I thought that. Thing oh, it's awesome. a cool that robot. Was great. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 We did. We did. Well, because ultimately, maybe maybe you were given this advice too. But my was going to be a short film about a giant robot attacking people on a freeway. Yeah. And I talked to a VFX guy. I was like, "Hey, can you do VFX for me?" He's like, "No, no, no. You don't. You don't have a million dollars. You don't want." You know, a $5,000 CGI robot. No one's going to, well, everybody's going to watch it and be like, this is crap. So I at least was given the advice to do real puppets. Yeah. And they said stop motion. Maybe you were given that advice too, Katie. But it was like, no, no, stop motion. Puppeteering on a green screen is the way to go. Yeah. And that's ultimately how it went. And it was, the process was really tough, but really fun. And the outcome is way better than I expected. Oh, true. And the robot is sitting in, in, in a case on my shelf yeah. in mm -hmm. a corner where my wife can't see it. That's right. She doesn't that's want, right. she doesn't want right. that to be the center of attention, uh -huh. but she wants to give me a pat on the Just head. Just a small reminder. That's very, very yeah. sweet of her.
Now, as you'd mentioned, so you have an, the, the whole thing from start to finish is about an hour. Mm-hmm. Web series are very hard to sell. Television's very hard to sell. I'm sure at some point there must have been a conversation. Why don't we just expand this to 90 minutes? We make a feature out of it, and there may be someplace elsewhere that this could live. Was that ever was that ever the, the thought? Did that ever cross anyone's mind? It really wasn't, and I think the reason for that is that television has to ask a question almost and, like, you know, give an engine for an ongoing story. Mm-hmm. And a feature... Has, gets to some point of completion. And a big part of the point of this story in this way for us is that this is like only the beginning for her. Once you are a mom, you're not getting out of that. Mm-hmm. You are a mom now forever. And so it didn't really feel like there was never a version of this where we were like, this is just the story of when she gets from here to here, right? Mm-hmm. We emotionally have an arc that you reach a new stage for her mm-hmm. uh, at the end of this. But I am... You know, at this point in my television directing career, you know, I'm at the point where I'm in the conversation for pilots and producing director jobs. But often the reason you don't get a pilot is because you haven't done a pilot, Mm -hmm. which is just the catch 22 of every part of this industry all the time. And so to me, I and part of sort of what we focused on in the writing even was to make sure I think I personally think when you watch the season, even though some of the episodes are short form, because of the way they're structured and stuff, it's very easy to see how anything could be expanded mm-hmm. into a half an hour episode on its mm-hmm. own. And so it feels very episodic and very ongoing engine. And I think if someone watches the hour, they'll be like, oh, I totally see how this is a TV show. So it was sort of like didn't seem necessary or it felt like unnecessarily punishing to ourselves to try to make it either longer or to force a sense of completion onto it as opposed to reaching an ending that just gets you to the next level. Yeah. Right. And and just to speak to the arc of the show, what's really interesting is Katie mentioned that it goes from possibly Dick Bunny and Kim's character, Max, being maybe sleep defied, maybe crazy, and then going from it turns out to be the adults in the information that are crazy. What is really interesting about it musically is that I was expecting to then take the crazy thing I wrote at the beginning and make it crazier when in fact, because it follows Max Kim's character is that the music actually gets more subtle as Mm -hmm. the show goes on because it was my interpretation that the end of the show is really just her accepting her motherhood and and walking away from this adult party that she kind of thought she might want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. And turns out she's just accepting him. And that's where it went musically. We're actually the, the music actually calmed down, which was which I was not expecting. The entire time Katie and I were talking, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to make this crazier. I'm going to have to make this crazier. And I never did. I actually ended up paring down pieces yeah. and making it sound more sentimental and more, again, accepting. So it was a really interesting arc that in a complete opposite of what I expected to go musically. Yeah. And that's just by... You, that's why you can't write three minutes of music. I'm gonna. I keep on expanding it. It's like ninety yeah. seconds to six. That's why you can't write a piece of music and be like, "Now I have a plan," without seeing yeah. where the show actually goes. Yeah, there becomes a conversation back and forth between the two of you. Now you had mentioned that, of course, this is proof of concept. So I know that you are just starting your festival run right now, mm-hmm. but is there a plan in place of like, these are the people we want to hit up for distribution or is the hope that like we're during this festival run, we're going to find the distribution, like, you know, the place that we're going to land. Oh, um, 
Great question. Yes. What is first what is all, the plan, Katie? First of all, thank you, Austin Film Festival, for being the first on you board. You are starting and strong. Premiering yeah, us. Great job. Um, yeah. That was very exciting. And right out of the gate, because we just finished post in August, like at the end of August. And a week later, later, I submitted here. And then like two weeks later, they're like, yeah, come. So in my mind, it sort of is a two-pronged approach, actually. I don't think, like festivals, I think that model is great if you have a feature, yeah. frankly. And even then, very hard. I'm, I guess, fortunate at the point where I am that I do have a lot of avenues in the industry and, and people in the industry who are, who are champions of mine, who are like, whatever, you have your next thing, please bring it to me first, da, da, da. and both production companies and networks and streamers and things. And so I do have a pretty good slate of people to whom I can send things. And then ironically, the challenge becomes finding any time to write or shoot anything of your own, right? Yeah. Because it's like... Thankfully, that list of people comes from working nonstop all the time with a million people. Sure. But then you're like, oh, yeah, no, I'll to I'm totally going to get you something of mine in the next five years. Yeah. So I'm so happy to finally have this because I've sort of been saying for a long time, like, well, I work on a lot of network comedies and I love them. They're so fun. But I'm always telling people, I'm like, the inside of my brain is like a little weirder than that. But like, mm -hmm. you know, this way I can just be like, oh, would you like to see what the inside of my brain looks like? Watch these puppets, yeah. right? And so, well, yeah. Well, because working with you before it was, and then you went to TV directing was like, okay, we've we've lost Katie. She's she's moved beyond us. Yeah, great. Okay, good, awesome, fantastic, yeah. congratulations. And then like, I went maybe a few months later, she's like, I've got this other series. And I was like, oh, I can't oh. not do it. Yeah. I can't, okay, I can't help myself. Okay, so uh, no, but great. I love your drive. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, this is so exciting. Your drive to me. is like truly, it's a truly creative drive of. I don't I don't have this end goal and then I'm considered done. I want to create what I want to create. Yeah, I think it, it there was like a symbiosis between I just had to make Dick Bunny because I got it and I needed to. Yeah. And that was all it was for. But at the same time, when it came time to decide how to make it and at what level, I was like, well, if you know, frankly, at this point, like it's I've done many, you know, scrappy shorts and I've done plenty of festivals and all that stuff. Now, if I could do this thing and it, because I love it so much and because it feels like my sensibility, if I could do this with enough polish mm -hmm. that I also could then really pitch it and and show it to people, whether or not they buy it, maybe that leads to a pilot for me or an agent for Susie agents. Please rep Susie Mendoza. She's so talented mm -hmm. or representation for Kim Griffin. She's so talented. Agents, please rep Kim Griffin. Uh, you know, all of those steps forward, uh, you know, it's the rising tide. Right. And mm -hmm. and. Any of those things is a huge win and makes the whole thing worth it, right? Mm -hmm. If anybody just takes a leap forward. Sure. But also, I think if we can, if we can sell it and get to make it, you know, we just want to make people feel seen. We created this because we didn't feel ourselves as though any of the shows that's kind of show comedic takes on motherhood did it in a way that was honest or I don't see myself in a lot of those yeah. moms. I either see moms who are like struggling because they have spaghetti sauce on their front mm -hmm. and I'm like... Eh, you can change your shirt, but what you can't change is that you are sitting alone in a house day in and day out while some people in the world are going to brunch at 1 p.m. That mm -hmm. will never be you again. And then, or is it like, you know, the mom who's like, we laugh at her because she's like wasted and kind of regrets that her kids are always hanging on it. And I'm like, oh no, I'm also very happy about my son. This is just impossible. And the reason it's impossible is society and this expectation that moms just like angelically like Virgin Mary like you know glide into motherhood and now mm. this is the best thing that ever happened to them and that you're not like going through a pretty violent transformation of your identity you know yeah. and so we were like 
we know how to do this. We want other people to see this so that they will feel seen. So if we can do that on a bigger platform, amazing. I think the festival part of it is just uh, for me. I mean, frankly, like this is just an ego thing, but like as a director, I've made lots of these littler shorts and I was like, this one I think is good enough that I can just focus on this kind of top tier of festivals. And that is what I sort of hadn't done yet is try Mm -hmm. to do something that could play it. Austin or Tribeca or South by or, you know, like any of that kind of range. And so I was like, okay, let's see if that happens too. Cause then I can have my cake and eat it well, too. You were yeah. so right about have it all your short that you did in, in 2018. What was that? What? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It was just, she hit this niche that as not a non-parent, non-woman, I'm like, they're not making stuff for you, you know, and 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 it just her that short just took off. And Katie was like, yes, it's because mothers aren't being seen in this light like they're being seen. And then Dick Bunny takes that even further to uh, like the psych- what you say the deep dive into the psyche yeah, yeah, of the yeah, mother. Yeah. And that's what's so fascinating about it. And so frustrating that like, oh, there isn't this stuff. This yeah. this message hasn't been delivered. I'm glad Katie is delivering it. You yeah. know, I mean, good on you for noticing that and then producing now, as we're wrapping up, we're getting down to the final six questions. Mm. These are kind of rapid fire questions. Yep. I could do this I'm going to do them for Katie, and then I'll do it for you, Barry. So, oh boy. Katie, what was the first film you ever made? This could be a student project. This could be something you made in the backyard when you were six years old. What was the first project you ever made, and how do you feel about it now? <laughs> Great question. Okay. The first project I ever made, I made because a friend of mine was forcing me to, all my friends were at that time, convincing me that I was actually a director. And I did not believe I was a director. I thought I just had too many thoughts on set as an actor. But over and over, people would be like, I really think you're supposed to be a director. And finally, someone forced my hand and said, you're going to be the one who shoots my pilot presentation in two weeks. So I called my friend and I said, I said, okay, uh, we are going to shoot this thing in two weeks. So this weekend, we need to make a short film so I can learn how to direct for directing. And so we made a short film called Lone Douche. Mm-hmm. And Lone Douche is a French new wave short film about a douche who walks around the world doing douchey things, but nobody cares or notices them or appreciates them. So because is, you just worked with puppets, I have to clarify, is it an actual douche uh, or is it a person uh, that you would describe oh, I'm so as a sorry. douche? Yeah. No, the lone douche, it's a guy. It's okay. A guy. Okay. And I wrote it for my friend, Aaron, and it was like the most ridiculous thing of all time. Mm. And I'm so glad you asked, how do I feel about it? Because at the time it was like, we're going to make this in, in three hours for 50 bucks in a park in NoHo. And it like went to some festivals, but I always was like, it was, you know, it was very silly and we were just fucking around and like it was a blast. And then I kind of let it lie for many years and about six months ago. And this is proof, by the way, my acting teacher always used to say any step you take for your art is money in the bank. You just don't know when you might get to withdraw it. But you have to trust that everything is like going to pay off in spades at some point. So like six months ago, this is now at this point, I've done like 30 episodes of television. Like it's totally I haven't thought about Lone Dish in forever. My agents were like, oh, we want to submit you for this project, but we just don't feel like we have anything quite outside the box or weird enough. Uh-huh. Like sort of, I have another short called Discard that stars a human tomato. And even that they were like, eh, but it's like emotional. And I was like, whoo, okay. I do have one thing I could show you that I've never shown you. And I sent them Lone Douche. Yeah. And that night after the workday was over, I got this like flurry of emails. One was like, I can't believe you've never shown this to me. This is the funniest thing I've ever seen. And then my other agent was like, I was just laughing so hard at this that my husband came in to check if I was okay. And then we rewound it and watched it again. And it was like, they loved it. And I had written it off so long ago as like this first little, you know, little practice doodad that was like fun for me, but can't be a real thing. Barry, same question for you. First thing you ever made, how do you feel about it now? 
First movie I ever scored was called Scatterbrain. Kind of a wild fairy tale. Yeah. And it was the first experience, and it was my first experience scoring and my first experience where the director said, I pretty much want generic versions of these songs. (laughs) So I was given limited artistic freedom, but at the same time that taught me how to exercise my artistic freedom within boundaries. Oh, interesting. And so it turned out to be an okay movie. Of course, the first film festival it screened at the sound for no reason at all cut out for about two seconds every 30 seconds no 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 so this i walk i'm, I'm at this festival i have business cards ready to go and yeah. i'm like i can't talk to anybody about this film they haven't even heard it it's mm. like it keeps on shutting down and it was so it was such a learning experience and i don't fault it i don't fault the director because the movie was it taught me to go beyond yeah. and so that was really fun so it's called scatterbrain scatterbrain okay Katie, what is the best filmmaking advice you have ever gotten? Oh, God. What a good question. We don't ask oh, the bad oh, questions. No, I do know. I do know. I do know. When you're about to do your first episode of television, yeah. the DGA makes you attend a day-long workshop for that is specific to episodic directing. So it's a lot of like, how do these directors work with the showrunner? How do you, what can you expect? Blah, blah, blah. And what's great is they do it with a panel of three directors. And the entire day long, all of the directors that are giving – like one will answer the first question – and then finish and one second pause. And then the other two are like, God, I would never do it that way. And so what you quickly realize is that there is no right way to do it. Mm-hmm. There's just the way that works for you. Yeah. And that was incredibly liberating. And as part of that, one of the directors up there had started as an actor. And he said, he was like, listen, when I did my first episode, I was so nervous about my technical prowess. Like I couldn't name every lens. I didn't know how to say like, we need, let's like go snorri cam on this or whatever. He was like, but I knew how to, I knew what it was and what it wasn't. I knew like in this thing, we need to like feel like we're having a panic attack with Carrie Washington as she comes down this hallway. And then the DP can say, oh, you know, that's great. And so at the end of that, I said to Paris Barkley, like we were, who was the former president of the DGA, he was like, how'd you like it? And I said, that was the most liberating thing for me because I felt so strong in acting and writing, like the storytelling part of it. And I knew absolutely in my head what it should look like, but I was like, I couldn't tell you if what a 70 is and how that's different from a 35 at the time, right? And he said to me, he was like, you know what? I've been doing this for like four decades. I do know the answer to all those things and I pretend I don't. And I was like, what? And he was like, because if you tell everybody what it is, then every other artist you're working with just shows up and is executing. Yeah. And... What you want is for them to beat you. And he's so right. Absolutely, each person you work with is an absolute expert in this field. I don't know the prop better than a person who's done only thought about props for <laughs> 20 years. I don't know the stunts better than a stunt coordinator who worked on Fast and Furious. I'm going to tell them how somebody should punch somebody. No, I know what the story of this is and whether what they're bringing me is right or wrong or needs to be tweaked for this. But of course, I want everyone to beat my idea. I'm going to get credit for it in the end anyway. Yeah. Why wouldn't every director work like that you know so that was amazing because it let me let go of my insecurities or my like they're gonna find out I'm a fraud and I just was like I know that I know in my gut that I'm sure of what it is like when it's wrong and when we've hit it and so Barry same question for you then I always give three quick pieces of advice the third one being the most important be nice yeah be relatively good at your job Uh you don't have to be amazing you just can't be bad at your job. So be relatively good at your job and stay in the game as long as you possibly can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. However you can. There is no, what I said, there is no, 
I'm going to go to Los Angeles, establish myself, and I'll be back in two years to Boston. That, yeah. that was ridiculous. It's not five years. It might not even be 10 years. By the five-year mark, you might start to get some crumbs. Yeah. Yes. And then by the 10-year mark, that might become, a, I don't know, a piece of bread. Um, so stay <laughs> yes. in the, yeah, be just nice, one slice. be relatively good at your job, and stay in the game as long as you possibly can, however you can. That's terrific advice. Another thing is, like, don't wait for permission to make your art. Yeah. yeah. And I think, Eric, you are such a good example of that. Yeah. Barry is a good example of that. Like, like no one's going to just, you're not going to show up and they'll be like, oh, thank God you're here. Here's $12 million. Like, yeah. <laughs> Yep. People can't know what your voice is unless you show them. Yeah. So find any way to be able to show them. Now, conversely, what is the worst filmmaking advice that you have ever gotten? Hmm. Have I gotten actively bad advice? I don't know, but I think I think because I, I'll say this instead. I, I don't think I've gotten a, a piece of bad advice, but I think I see a pitfall often, which is, you know, I've been in LA for 15 years now. I've worked on a million projects at this point. No two people have gotten to any level of whatever thing they're doing in this industry in the same way. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it's great to hear people's stories, but the important thing you have to do is extrapolate instead yeah. of imitate. And so I'm just talking in terms of like how you get forward, right? And so like whatever worked for somebody else, oh, I snuck into an agency and stole the mailing list of blah, blah, blah. And then someone else is like, I'm in a short and suddenly everyone wanted me. It's mm -hmm. like everybody's is different. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's important to just take away the like, be bold, but be kind, you know, like uh, appreciate other people, support other artists. They will support you back, yeah. you know, all of those things. But and yeah. just for legal reasons, I should point out that the Making Movies is Hard podcast does not condone sneaking into no, an agency no, or stealing either. anything. So I don't either. Just Katie Locke O'Brien. No, that's what she I'm saying said. I that's think what that's she's advising advice. people to do, not us. Anyway, Barry, same question for you. What's some of the worst advice that you have gotten as a composer? Can I, how about as a musician? As a musician, okay. Uh, yeah, I played in this band and I borrowed, I had to borrow a bass amp from this guy who was in the next band. And I borrowed it and I waited for his band and then he proceeded to then tell me everything that I was wearing that was wrong, that wow. I should wear look a certain way, that I need to wear tight jeans and cowboy boots. And so it was this very weird advice of, and I had to listen to him because I had borrowed his bass amp and he helped me out. Yeah. So my helping him out was listening to his bullshit. Okay. So, by the way, I gotta say, your cowboy boots today are great. They're great. I, no. They oh my god, so I can't. Nice. Please don't ever put on cowboy boots. That's insane. Well, that's your, the thing is, your pants are so tight. <laughs> I, yes, there's certain things to. Yeah, you need to have a brand. You need to have a style. But like, dress nice, but don't don't do a look. There's no look. The Hollywood yeah. look is. There's no, you know, there's no look, there's no nothing. Yeah. yeah. I feel so. like all the bad advice I ever got was when I was focusing on being an actor, mm -hmm. because so much of it is about fitting in. But the problem with fitting in to people's idea of what they're looking for is that you're fitting into something that's already cool, which means it's not the next thing. If you fit and in, the, you can't stand out. You have to fit out. You have to fit out. And the only way you can fit out is by just being yourself. Mm -hmm. And especially when I first moved to LA, there were like just a lot of auditions. I went on a lot of, and I would be like, oh, okay, this is some lines for like girl in bar. She's cute, but she can hang with the guys. And I was just like, but my brain is made of puppets. Like this yeah. is maybe not what you see is not what you get. You know, it's not like you went through the ringer. I, I can't imagine being an actor in that. Oh, it's terrible. That's no one it. should do it. Yeah. Um, oh, it's, it's fun and easy. You make lots of money. I miss it terribly, um, but I can also no. Um, yeah. Do you, do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Yeah. Good. All right. Next question. <laughs> uh, moving on. I'm just incredibly inspired by filmmakers who get to the point where 
they are creating work where every single choice that's on screen is so clearly and purely theirs, yeah. their voice, and where it's like, maybe it's weird, maybe it's not for all people, but like, by golly, they are like sharing their self, themselves with the world, yeah. you know? And I think to get to the point where I can be writing and directing my own work mm -hmm. is a total dream. If I could then like pop out and act in somebody else's thing once in a while for fun, like that would be the best. But yeah, I just think getting, I guess, I guess really what it is, is in the most extreme progression from starting out as like a starving auditioning actor is like just that at every level, I'm just always looking to have more agency over my own art. Yeah. 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 What about you, Barry? Uh, other than to work with Katie again? Yeah. yeah. Uh, probably to score two independent features a year. Okay. Ooh, good All one. right. So that's your, yeah, the ongoing goal. I will never not accept a Marvel job. But I think I'm 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 worried that if I for a big studio film I might not have the creative freedom that I would have on an indie film. Yeah, and and it also takes a lot of hard work to score a film. Yeah, so I wouldn't want to do you know a few year and, and have a team and and have them churn out stuff. I don't want to churn anything out, but I do want obviously consistent work. So yeah, two, scoring two feature films here. If you could go back in time and give yourself a piece of advice. What would it be? You're more than you think you are. Mm -hmm. I think it, uh, you know, uh, on some level, uh, you know, for me, it was such a gradual and over time opening up of what all the ways I could be an artist. And I think it took me a very long time to understand that the skill I had wasn't acting, wasn't writing, wasn't directing, it's storytelling. And there are different, you can be in a different medium from day to day, but, but that all of that is okay. And that the the imposter syndrome that comes from feeling like, well, I didn't, I spent so long being like, well, I, you know, I've trained as an actor and like as a writer, but I didn't go to film school. I don't care about Citizen Kane. I've just seen three amigos a thousand times. Like I did. And so that You're basically the, way, the same film. I, it just kept me. By the way, from, that's exactly how I feel about movies in general. I, I mean, I mean that like, no, I yeah, I, I worry that I haven't seen the, the, or I, I've seen them, but I don't feel them. But like when you said three amigos, I was like, of course I've seen that. Like, like it's like the it. greatest piece of cinema of the last sure. hundred years. But, I think because of that, you know, we, we have such a like genius myth auteur bro kind of thing that we sort of fetishize. And the reality is that you can be you're probably more of an expert storyteller than you realize you are. But you have to try or you won't find out. Very same question for you. So if you could go back, give yourself a piece of advice, what would it be? Uh, chill the F out. <laughs> <laughs> and really what I mean by that is, yes, there are steps you can take to further your career, but there's no linear path. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so. When you go to a festival and score, you know, and for a short you've scored and you've got business cards and then the sound cuts out. Well, then my world was over. Was yeah. my world over in yes. 2000 whenever? No, obviously not. But I had this idea that I was going to do this and it was going to get me this. Yeah. And that's just not how it works. Yeah. And you need to be open to accepting the opportunities that are given to you, but they're not going to come because you do one thing that, of course, put yourself out there, do the work, yeah. but don't expect a result from the one thing that you did that you expected a result from. All right. Final question is normally we ask, is making movies hard? Is making a series hard? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Making yeah. anything is hard. Making a short is hard. Making a feature is hard. It's also so fun. And Making a series is, is, you know, it's hard to, to keep your narrative afloat and mm -hmm. to keep the interest there and to keep it consistent and to set something up in the pilot that you know is going to still serve it 
you know, 10 episodes in, 100 episodes in. At the same time, I feel like when, when things are really right and they fit hand in glove, it's, there's like a, were these supposed to be speed round questions, by the way, because we're totally failing that. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you guys completely failed. Yeah, okay, good, yeah, good, good, just yeah. checking. Okay, so anyway, there's, a, there's an Emerson quote, I believe, which is that, you know, when something creative occurs to you, it's sort of like when you have that spark of an idea, it's already completed out there somewhere in the universe. Mm-hmm. And your whole process is just working to get back to that initial view that you had. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, when it's right, yes, it's hard, but it's all the same and you're just doing the same whittling and, and yes. searching and yeah. Very same question for you. Is composing hard? Have you read all of Emerson? That was the question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> for people who don't know, Emerson wrote Three Amigos. Composing is, composing is very hard, and I applaud anybody who does it. Mm-hmm. And it's, you put, it's, hard to put your, it's hard to put your emotion into something that no one else is going to understand, and they're also not going to understand how much emotion you put into it. Mm-hmm. Maybe they feel it on some level, but they don't understand that it, it, take, it takes a toll on you. Yeah. And that doesn't mean it's not fun. Like I kind of have my ideas all out there and that's kind of a blessing to have that, ha- you know, be out there. But at the same time, yes, it, it's a lot. <laughs> okay. So final thing, how do our listeners support you guys? How do they support Dick Bunny? How do they follow you? What is, what is the best way to, uh, what is, what is something you, what is the call to action for you, for our uh, listeners? I'm an old lady, so probably Pigeon is like the best way to send me messages. Well, Instagram, you can follow me at katielockobrien.com, L-O-C-K-E. Not con- oh my God, I just said Instagram and then I said dot com. I am <laughs> 250 <laughs> years old. Yeah. No, I'm on Instagram at Katie Lock O'Brien. Uh-huh. And uh, Dick Bunny is not released yet, but when we get through the festival circuit, but you can follow Dick Bunny Official on Instagram as well, just to kind of watch us through the festival journey, mm-hmm. check out some stills, some little clippy doos, things like that. And then, uh, you know, those people will be the first to know when the series is released. Terrific. Barry, how about yourself? If you have a feature film that you want a very unique score or uh-huh. somebody's going to pour a lot of emotion into it and uplift your project, you can find me everywhere at Instagram, Twitter, TikTok at Barry J. Neely. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show! Eric, tell us a little bit about what you remember about your chat with Katie and Barry. Thanks, you guys. Yeah, so this is one that we recorded at the Austin Film Festival, and a huge thanks to the Omni Hotel for giving us that awesome recording space, and thank you to the Austin Film Festival for hooking us up. So everyone knows, full disclosure, I have known Barry Neely for uh, probably about 15 years. He is He's a, a terrific composer. He has scored, I think, almost everything that I have ever done. And I have worked with Katie Locke O'Brien before. I do have to say, you know, it's funny with our podcast, I think we spend a lot of time really trying to uplift filmmakers and try and give them a voice. But every so often, this has only happened twice, where I kind of kick myself after the fact for not giving a little bit of pushback. Uh, Like I didn't entirely buy the narrative that they were kind of selling. Katie's kind of call to arms with this is that, you know, she's a, a mother. And she just really didn't feel that women and mothers were being represented in the way that she felt they should have been. 
Now, I am a stay-at-home dad. I have been. My kids are in middle school now. This is kind of where I wanted to push back a little bit. I have to say, as a stay-at-home dad, there's a lot of content for moms. There's quite a bit. Now, granted, I will say that her short was kind of very wacky and zany. had some very unique bends to it because there was like a lot of puppetry. There was a lot of like zooming into the mom's head. But yeah, I kind of, I wish if I could go back, I would, I would push back a little bit and kind of ask what exactly she meant by there's not a lot of content for moms. And if you disagree with me, by all means, send all of those angry letters right to Ulrich Purcell. He will go ahead and flag all those for you. So thanks very much. But uh, other than that, I mean, I do have to say, like, the, she's a very talented filmmaker. He's a very talented uh, composer. So no shade on them. But I just kind of, it's, it's more of a dig on myself. Like, I kind of wish I'd push back a little bit harder. Eric, thanks so much for giving us that insight to your chat with Katie and Barry. It sounded like a really good conversation. Thank you so much for going to Austin to do it for us. But most excitingly, it is time for You're the Expert. This week, we have a, another one of our wonderful segments of You're the Expert. If you had first listening for the very first time to this episode, to the show, this is your first ever Making Movies is Hard podcast episode. What this is, is the segment where our producer Eric Toms comes up with like a question that he thinks that Liz and I will be the absolute experts on and we'll have a definitive answer for this question. So we get to read these in advance. I actually was really busy, so I haven't read this yet, but maybe Liz did. But anyways, here is the question. How much do I really have to really know before making my first short film? The two of you have discussed the pros and cons of attending film school, but what about just having an idea and embarking on a short film? That's a great question. Liz, what, what do you have to know? Do you have to know anything? What, what is the thing that you should know before you make your first movie? No, you don't have to know anything. Like, that's what, I mean, shorts are an art to themselves, but they're also practice, right? They can be the centerpiece piece of art for yourself in your career, but there a lot of utility comes from using shorts as practice to get better and better as a filmmaker. And I think that it's a wonderful opportunity to actually go through trial by fire. Yes, you could read tons of books or you can listen to our podcast with short filmmakers, which we did a few weeks ago. But I think it's more interesting for someone to just start. And I would say the way to look at it is don't don't burn all your bridges or blow all your resources on your first short. Really work with kind, generous people, cheap, accessible equipment, and storylines that are easily producible because it will be hard enough to just get the short off the ground and to execute it and finish it and distribute it that I think to add more variables like stunts or children or animals or genre motifs or something like that, save that for your second ever short. But my advice is even just to pick out your phone and grab a friend and go to a park and just start shooting so you can understand what coverage is. You can understand what it looks like when there's no set design, there's no production design, what bad sound sounds like, like just experience it for yourself. Auric, what about you? I think ideally you would know the story you want to tell, but if you don't know what that is, like like the full, like the beginning, middle and end, which like, I'm not saying you have to have the script, but like just to know like the beginning, the middle, the end to your story, I think that would be the, a really great place to start. But if you didn't even know that, you just knew, like, I want to make a movie that is a horror movie. 
or a romantic comedy or whatever. And, and then you knew maybe one step more like about a blank. Then I think if you knew that genre and it's a story about a blank, then I think you could go to a writer and then like you could you could come up with a short film, you know. But I think knowing what you want to make is is important, you know, to start, because then from there, like Liz said, you could pick up your phone. You could like start calling your friends who or people that you may know who may be interested in making a movie with you. Or you can start researching like who your team is going to be and how you're going to pull this together. But like having that kernel of an idea is like a really great thing to have to start the process. But yeah, do you have to go to film school? No. Like, do you have to have a million filmmaking friends? No. Do you have to have any filmmaking friends? No. Do you have to have any friends? Probably not. Would it be good if you did? Yes. But you (laughs) you could basically start with zero. Like, you could be like a person with nothing but an idea, and you could go on the internet, and you could find everything that you need on the internet to go make your movie, including your team, the equipment, everything. You know, like, you could, like, literally have nothing and you can make a movie i don't know if your kid watches my kid watches youtube every day Mm. youtube is very important (laughs) to my child and my friend christina who does not have children came in the room and she was like what is this and it was just like barbies talking to each other and that was like the short film on youtube that my son was obsessively watching right and i'm just saying like you don't even need actors like i think the idea is can you understand what the diversity of footage you need to hold someone's attention, even if it's stick figures or Barbies or insects or whatever it is like to better to learn through trial by fire about B-roll and coverage. Like, I feel like that's just a massive hill to climb in of itself. And like, I would actually avoid having a script for the first short film. If you can, like at USC, they teach you nonverbal storytelling is your first short film is that you should do it all without dialogue. And that's an interesting place to be too. Yeah. That's, that's, that's great advice. I mean, I feel like the, one of the earlier short films I made didn't have a script, you know, we yeah. just we like, here's what the story's going to be. Yeah. You know, here are the shots. Just go, you know, like you just, just do it. Just do it. I kind of figure it out. Also, one of my favorite things I've made, which I think I made after I had a script, after I had written, I'd written scripts for other things, but I made this thing with like almost no script. I just was like, I just was writing on the bus on my way home from work. And I would just like write down like, this is what we're going to do today. And then I would like come to my friends. I'd be like, okay, this is what we're going to do today. Mm. And then we would like make the Steven Seagal homage short film, you know? which I started to. <laughs> I love that. I love that. But it, but it was like literally like basically like writing a shot list on my way home from my day, from my job at the time. And then just like coming with like a little crinkly piece of paper and being like, this is our guide. <laughs> and then yes. like, here are the fake guns. And here's, I'm, I'm going to get in my wardrobe right now. Like, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> you know, that's kind of like the joy of filmmaking is when it's so wild and free. <laughs> Yeah. And also it's like you don't even know that that's a shot list. You just it's just your to do list for that day. You know what I mean? Like and I think that's a cool way of looking at it. Like, you know, make a movie completely agnostic from however people have made it before and see what works for you and just see how naturally you decide to make the movie without going to read every single book and watch every YouTube video on how to do it. Like you just press record and see what happens. 
Yeah. My, my really good friend who's like not a filmmaker anymore, but was filmmaking at the time was a cinematographer and like, man, we got some really great shots that yeah. he just came up with. Like, yeah. I was like, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> he was like, okay, I'll put, I'll put the camera here. I was like, great. That's going to be awesome. And, and then it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Wild. Good question. What do you guys think? What do you think you need to, to make your first short film? We'd love to hear your thoughts on it. People haven't wrote, written us an email in like 1000 years. But yeah, if you guys have insight, I'd love to hear it. You can send us a question, comment, or that suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. I haven't checked in weeks. I don't know if we have a new iTunes review or not, but I will check before next week. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Be sure to also check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. They're an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and of course, their top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Katie Locke O'Brien and Barry Neely for coming on the show. Thanks to Awesome Film Festival for having us back this year or last year. And to the Omnia Hotel for hosting us in their podcast room for a second time. Thanks to Eric Toms, of course, for going to Austin without me this, this time and doing all these interviews. He did like six interviews in one day. He's incredible. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing the editing on the episode. Thanks to Robert Jones for handling all of our social media. And again, one more thanks to Eric, uh, to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. Thanks you all for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. It's going to be so great. It's, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great, we're going to do let's it right do it. now. We're going to stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs>